0: Content warning. The Tiger and the Dragon is a 19th century horror pastiche audio drama. It will contain references to colonialism, crime, firearms, the occult, and period typical racism, misogyny, and ableism. It will not contain any themes of sexual assault, but will contain violence, including mentions of violence against women and unborn children. Please do check the more detailed content warnings in the show notes, and look after yourselves and each other. the tiger and the dragon. Episode three Colonel Morin's account. I suppose I should start after Holmes caught me in ninety four. During the Adair affair. That was the end of a damned good run of cards, that was. After college I went, of course. Had to be prison to ladies like you, Mem Saib. Thankfully I had a fair bit of pizza left over from what the professor paid me, and from my winnings. Enough for a decent lawyer anyway. Enough to get me off hanging.
1: A damning indictment of the decay of the legal system.
0: Aye, I write so ought to have hanged, ought not I? Ha <laughs> ha how dreadful. Anyhow, there I languished for a few years, made myself useful to a few of the biggest bully boys, and worked my way up in the proceedings, assuming I was there for the duration. Then one day along came some political cove asking to see me. I was called into the warden's office and offered early release if I was willing to volunteer to get up to something rum for the good of the Empire. I suppose this all ought to be kept hush-hush, but damned if I care about their secrets. You may keep it quiet if you wish, Miss Seward, being a civically-minded sort of lady.
1: For prudence's sake, I will not repeat anything you relate which I judge could be considered some state secret to anyone other than my nephew. Do carry on.
0: Well, I'd done some political work back in my day in India, by which I mean quietly going places and occasionally shooting troublesome people for the government. And the political code clearly knew this and made some reference to it. He told me they'd been short a man in Afghanistan since the last one aborted in the first wave of that cholera epidemic back in 99.
1: Oh yes, I-, I do remember reading about that. It was in all the medical journals.
0: Fascinating reading, I'm sure. Very messy cholera.
1: Medicine and disease are often messy... I'm afraid you may have to explain a great deal to me, Colonel. I know very little about the East. I have only heard what is considered fitting for the ears of ladies about the rebellion in India, and I know very little or nothing of the region of Afghanistan, other than we have fought a few battles there. As I said, I do not move in military circles. I feel quite embarrassed at my ignorance sometimes.
0: Oh, don't worry, Mem Saib. You're about to get an education. The government wallet told me the job was a bit of a rum do, and I shouldn't be surprised if I saw things out of the ordinary. I told him that was nothing to me, having worked for the professor. It would have been less cocky if I'd known the extent of the rumness of the do in question. <laughs>
1: Odd to think that there is something in the world that could make a man such as you shudder.
0: I've seen things that would freeze the blood in a man's veins, I, and I thought I'd seen it all before this. The political cove, he informed me I was to use the pseudonym Tiger, which I'm sure he must have thought very clever. Fine by me. It's a nickname I've gone by before. He said I'd be working with another political. A foreigner who I would know as Dragon.
1: Sounds positively Chinese.
0: (laughs) I confessed to being slightly irritated I wouldn't be working alone, but they insisted. We were to go about under the guise of business partners looking to set up ventures in the Far East. Within a day or so, my release papers were signed, and I was out in the fresh air again. I was given rooms in a lodging house, and when I arrived, I found an absolute treasure trove waiting for me.
1: Here, I am afraid, I cannot remember the full details of what Colonel Moran accounted. He elaborated for several minutes on the wonderful guns he was provided with. Lee Enfield Metford's and modified bolt actions and martinis and Webley's... Though not, he bemoaned, his Von Herder air gun... Furthermore, he had been left several cases of what he described as monster-hunting paraphernalia. Crosses, blessed weapons, a wooden stake, a mallet, holy water, a bible, silver and gold bullets, various herbs, poisons and filters. Salts, 12 feet of rope, matches, a set of prayer beads from a number of different religions. A selection of amulets, a small bag of grains of rice. I've forgotten the rest... He seemed rather amused by the whole concept.
0: Thoroughly equipped against every form of supernatural threat, I was sent to meet the dragon in a warehouse in an area of Limehouse a respectable lady like yourself should hope to never have to enter. As you may have guessed, it was your Mr. Alucard. His get up was just as you described. Good fabrics, but no idea of fashion. Top hat well made, but two seasons old, and the like. As if he'd been dressed by someone who'd been reading mail order catalogues. <laughs> Obviously I could see there was something off about him from the start. Never seen a man who looked more like a creature risen from the grave since my old housemaster at Eton. <laughs> but I'd been provided with a boxload of steaks and crosses, so clearly this was all as expected. We barely exchanged a word between us until we were alone on a boat bound for the Mediterranean, at which he entirely broke protocol and introduced himself to me as Mr Vlad Allikard. I found the candour refreshing and gave him my name in turn.
1: That is not his real name.
0: <laughs> of course not, and no more is Jack Augustus mine. But so I told him. Augustus is my father's name. I do like to use the old pater's handle while I'm up to rum business. I asked him his reasons for doing the political work. He replied with a cryptic grin that he was being rendered out to the British government in exchange for some peace of mine for a doctor friend of his.
1: That must refer to Dr Van Helsing. Did he mention anything of his whereabouts?
0: Fred, not. Mr. Alicard spent a great deal of his time below decks in his cabin, only emerging at night. He had a number of trunks, but then so did I, as belonging to our smokescreen business interest. Something textile-based, if I recall correctly. Our journey across the Mediterranean was almost uneventful, apart from one incident at the port of Cataro, which Mr. Alicard insisted on referring to poetically as Illyvian, and commenting wistfully that he was passing so close to home. He went missing for a few hours, when we made port and... Just before we were about to leave, a local girl was found dead. Not a drop of blood left in her body. Blasted Fellow still wasn't back when we were due to set sail, so I had to go and find him in the town. After a tiresome hunt, I caught up to him in a tavern with a set of drunken gypsies who were treating him like a long-lost cousin. They gave me the eye when I lost my temper at him. I tried to drag him out of there, but I might as well have tried to drag an anchor. But thankfully he decided to come along. We sailed on to Smyrna where we were met at the docks by a little Indian man dressed all neat like a secretary. He greeted us with, God save the Queen, to which we both replied in kind, with only the smallest of delays. Provided us with a pile of paperwork and then disappeared into the crowd.
1: How terribly enigmatic.
0: Politicals. The paperwork was our mission briefing. To give you the short version, apparently it was a tribe of Afghans, Pashtuns, in the mountains north of Kabul, who kept disappearing any British officials and to treat with them. The last envoy had apparently ridden into Peshawar garrison and fallen off his horse into the arms of a subaltern, gibbering about sorcery and great sandy demons. I can only guess that, finding themselves facing a supernatural enemy, the British government decided they should send a supernatural monster, and presumably also a supernaturally good shot, if I do say so myself, to find out the details of the matter and deal with it. Anyway... The journey between the Mediterranean and Afghanistan, by horse, caravan or train, is perilous at the best of times, which I reckon is why Her Late Majesty's government gave me such an extensive set of firearms. But for us it seemed unusually uneventful. The night was full of noises, horrible screams and such, and we were under constant fear of attack from Ottomans and Arabs and possibly Russian agents, and yet we ran into very few problems, despite ostensibly being a merchant caravan and thus rich pickings for bandits. We reached Afghanistan, having experienced only a few minor skirmishes, which I made short work of with the Martini Henry. Honestly, my favourite rifle. Use it extensively, far more trustworthy than the newer Enfield models by my reckoning. Served me well from the heights of Ali Masjid to the Payar Valley back in the 70s. Never saw your Mr. Ali card engaged, though. He remained under very large hats during the day, and we barely saw him at night.
1: This does not surprise me.
0: "'Would that I'd known what you did at the time, Miss Seward. "'although I think I had a bit of an inkling. "'The monster-hunting kit, "'The strange behaviour. "'But I dismissed it as more of his foreign nonsense. "'I've met some bramkos in my time, as I said. "'There was one particular incident during the journey "'that sticks in the brain and gives me the willies "'even now when I think on it. "'And what happened later throws it all into clearer light. "'Somewhere to the west of Herat, "'a party of bandits toting Jezail's, that's a sort of long, handmade rifle. We attacked our caravan at night. We had a set of doughty fellows with us. Caravan guards, all of whom had been told we were a pair of businessmen heading east. Though I suspect some had started to twig there was something off about Mr. Alicard. As I'm sure, I saw one of the Turks fingering an amulet when he was around. They rallied round and we put up a strong defence. But I had no idea how many we were up against in the dark, and I was preparing for them to overwhelm us. I looked around to Mr Alicard, but he was nowhere to be seen. Then a terrifying shriek split the night in two. <coughs> the sound of a man crying out in horrified agony. The gunfire from the bandit side abruptly stopped, and cries of God preserve us were heard in various local languages, and the sound of running from the hills. It went quiet, and nobody dared move in case some wild animal was still out there. Obviously it fell to yours truly to go out and investigate. I reloaded the martini, Henry, pocketed another box of cartridges, and ventured out in the direction of the screen. (sighs) Honestly, the memory of it is putting the wind up me even now, Miss Seward. I crested the ridge above where we had camped, and scrambled down the rocks below. I peered around a corner to spy at what I could in the moonlight, and saw a great black I'd say there was something of a dog about it, but also something of a flock of bats, and something else of the very night itself. Poetic description, I know. I'm not usually a man from Waffle, but I'm trying to give you a sense of what this thing was like. It was looming over one of the bandits, a barely badmash with a great red beard, his face and torso mutilated. I shouldered my piece, ready to try and take it down, when it turned its head towards me and fixed me with a piercing red glare. I have only seen such eyes once before in my life, Miss Seward. Only been transfixed by a gaze that malevolent once before. In Bengal, I crawled down a drain to dispatch a man-eating tiger that had taken refuge there, pursued by beaters and gunfire. It was particularly intelligent, that beast. It would already eaten two gear salesmen and a punker by creeping up on them unsuspecting. That's how they get you, you know, tigers. Lie in wait downwind of their prey and catch them unawares. The locals were claiming it was a Rakshasa demon, or maybe a witch who'd taken the form of a tiger. Down that drain, in the pitch dark, trying to keep my powder from being dripped on by filthy water, I saw her, just before she picked up my scent. She was eight feet from nose to tail, and she looked at me in a manner that made it perfectly clear I was a piece of moving meat. Then I shot her, right between the eyes. Such was the gaze that met me in that valley. I held it, obviously. You can't just let them know they've got you. Sometimes, you hold a beast's gaze for long enough, it'll just lope away. And you don't even need to fire a shot. Which is preferable, frankly. Honestly, I had no idea what this thing was, but I was determined to bag it. I've hunted heavy game from Kashmir to Kashmir. Literally wrote the book on it.
1: So your normal response to encountering a strange creature is to try and kill it?
0: I suppose sometimes I might let it go if I don't think it's a threat, or a challenge. So, there we were, man and monster, staring each other down. I slowly put my piece to my shoulder and took aim, squeezed the trigger, and fired. The round went right through it, as if through a swarm of bees. And then it tossed its head and loped away, leaving me dumbfounded. Cursing, I headed back to camp. When I got there, I called out to say it was me, and the guards came out of their hiding places. Said I'd seen an animal, couldn't tell what it was, and had scared it off for the short. We weren't bothered any more that night, but just as I was about to turn in, your Mr. Alicard came sauntering back into camp. Thinking him a poltroon and absconded at the first sign of danger, I said something cocky to him about it. He said nought back, but simply grinned at me. I stood up and turned to him, and found him regarding me with that self-same red-eyed gaze. It did not take a genius to perform the necessary mathematics. And by the manner in which he smiled and turned away, I could swear Mr Alicard simply knew when I had realised the truth of the matter.
1: I do not doubt that Mr Alicard can assume such a shape, Colonel. I am sure that it is among his unholy powers. It seems that there is no end to his evil ways. I hope we do not encounter him again.
0: I don't know, Miss Seward. I wouldn't mind getting a shot off at him with something more to it than standard rounds. Silver, maybe.
1: I am surprised that he was so quiet and meek around you, performing his depravities where they would not be witnessed. Perhaps he respected you, or wasn't sure of you.
0: Or perhaps he didn't want to show his hand too bloody soon. Anyway, I'm only partway through the proceedings.
1: Of course. Please continue. We
0: reached Kabul without further incident, and spent a day or so there restocking. I've always liked Kabul. Bracing mountain air, splendid shoes... The Tiger and the Dragon is a Cytogram Here production by Lou Sutcliffe, distributed under a Creative Commons Intribution non-commercial 4.0 international license. It featured Jennifer Noirow as Anna Seward and Lou Sutcliffe as Sebastian Warren. Editing, soundscaping, and score was by Lou Sutcliffe, with additional mastering editing by Jem Hawes. This episode used sounds from Freesand.org. For full accreditation, content warnings, and transcripts, please see the show notes. If you enjoyed this little pastiche, please do leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice, in the Times of London, or posted on a dockside notice board at a port on the Adriatic Sea. Thank you for listening, and may you have a delightful day and an untroubled night.